Hey, I'm Pete. Welcome to The Change Paradox. I'm your chaperone, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about what you're going to hear today. I don't have any siblings. As an only child, I grew up free of the secret languages and bonds and fights that come with siblinghood. I've been jealous about that bond just about all my life. I mean, everybody had a sibling in my social group. At the end of our long summers of neighborhood games, we'd peel off at the last sign of sunlight and head home. All pairs, it seemed like to me. And then just me heading up the hill home. Thankfully, both my parents are unrepentantly and joyously childish, or I'd have been a real downer. I'd thought that I'd gotten over these childhood feelings of sibling insecurity, and then I met Dodge Ray. Now, Dodge, he's the hero of our tale, and the change paradox, this show, is his podcast. You'll get to know him very well over the course of our time together. He's a licensed clinical psychologist in private practice in Nashville, and we've been friends for 25 years. He regularly reminds me what it means to be a good human. You all can count on him for that. Now, Ben Ray. Ben is Dodge's younger brother, and he is a licensed clinical social worker specializing in family systems. But think about that for a minute. Two brothers, both in the mental health field, both graduated from University of Virginia. I was around when they were both driving the same cars. If you're thinking about making a Fraser and Niles joke in your head right now, take a number and get in line. But there's a lot to love about Ben Ray. He's kind and joyous and ruggedly handsome and gracious. In fact, I once stood him up for a Toad the Wet Sprocket concert, and he didn't hold a grudge at all. I would have held a grudge had someone done that to me, not Ben Ray. No, sir. So it's an auspicious day for us, the launch of this brand new podcast. And so we thought we'd kick it off with a dose of the healing siblings. Ben Ray is our very first and honored guest. He joins Dodge for a conversation on ACT. That's Acceptance and Commitment Therapy for you uninitiated. And he shares how he uses it to help others in his practice, Healthy Minds, in San Luis Obispo, California. Oh, one more thing. Ben refers to Dodge as B a few times in this podcast. That is a sibling and best friend thing where once you've known Dodge for at least 25 years, you get to call him that. As such, Ben can call him that. I can call him that. You can't call him that. You need to get to know him better. Here you go. The Brothers Ray, Dodge, and Ben on A.C.T. I was thinking about this this conversation this morning and kind of laughing to myself that you really didn't have much of a choice but to come on this show, but not for the obvious reason that you're my brother and you have to, or for the obvious reason that, you know, you're very much in the change world yourself. It's that neither of us had a choice. We've been groomed for this conversation since before we were born. There is truth to this. I, I remember very clearly sitting on the toilet as a child <laughs> and... <laughs> And directly across from the toilet is, was a poster that mom had put up. And it was, it was a picture of like a, I don't know, like a Greek 
cave or something with water flowing through it and it, and it said the only way out is through <laughs> and so i was groomed while pooping to to, to do this show. <laughs> little brother i am pretty sure that is some revisionist history right there because i remember that being <laughs> in this on the wall between the kitchen and the living room <laughs> no blasphemy oh it's an auspicious beginning indeed <laughs> it is indeed But the point was, (laughs) neither of us had a choice. And the the real reason we had a choice was not because of (laughs) what was on the wall, but (laughs) because we were raised by a family systems therapist who had, you know, wizards of change walking in and out of the house uh, as her mentors and wonderful family friends. And before that, her father, our dear grandfather, was a major influence over the 12 steps in helping Bill W., you know, really join the spiritual problem of his alcoholism. Um, and they together were kind of the architects of those those steps. And then I realized, you know, even our dad and stepmom, Julie, spent their entire careers working on change on a more global way for the Agency for International Development. And like all of these versions of change, we're working on change from the inside out. They were living in the sub-Saharan African countries where change was most needed. And um, so I think this conversation has been a very long time coming. We, in fact, made careers of such things. It was also cool thinking back that a, a week ago I called you up and I was really wondering whether it was actually time to postpone this podcast because there's so much change happening in my life right now uh, from my my son and family leaving the beautiful school he's been part of all of his life and the family we've had there to me leaving here the Lotus Center, which has been, you know, the majority of my career and been very much my professional home and and uh, my professional family as that building goes to sell. And I felt really tearful about both. I was calling you up saying, maybe this would be, it's just a little bit too overwhelming a time to get into this. You promptly agreed. And then we had an entire conversation that should have been recorded as the first podcast because it was absolutely fantastic because we were just looking at like, this has changed itself. And how ironic, I mean, almost laughably ironic would it be to, to skip that change process and only begin talking about it afterward. Right. Skip the change process. I might say a little differently to, to not al- allow yourself to really join with feeling. And, and that's yeah. what we're talking about in this podcast. The paradox of change comes when we join with the feeling. There is a surrender element to this mysterious paradox that I really want to get to in this show. And I think I was in that place a week ago that everybody gets to around change where a i don't want it to happen and i'm just going no 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 but when i can't help it happening then i'm really trying to block the feeling of it as much as i can and in that case was tearful multiple times a day and that wasn't going to happen either so then i wanted to kind of crawl into a cave and have it not be an experience i shared but one that i had alone i had a great moment in a group this week where Somebody got really quiet as there was a major kind of reframe for something he was working on. I asked him about his growing quiet, and he said, you know, I guess I'm just really chewing on that. That's a huge thing to chew on. And my encouragement to him was to chew with his mouth open. 
little seafood. <laughs> and I guess that's really the effort here is like to just be chewing on this change with my mouth open as much as possible. Let, you know, our listeners be part of my process and invite guests on who will do the same so that this can be as much a transparent and vulnerable podcast as it is an educational exploratory one. And even as a therapist, I, I just I don't adhere to the idea that we as therapists are supposed to represent what's perfect because it, it sets up the client to, to think that somehow if they do it right, if, if they do it just the way we tell them, then they can be us, right. which is just utter bullshit. Yep. It's, it's ridiculous. And I think it actually sets up clients um, invariably to feel worse Yeah, because it's an illusion. And, and in that place, it's, it's so much more effective, I find, to be authentic and to yeah. show them our struggle, not have them help us with our struggle, but to be real in our struggle. And so, you know, here we are and here you are with this podcast, which invariably your clients will listen to. I think that's a really good thing. Say a little bit more about how you practice acceptance and commitment therapy, something you're not here to represent or so much educate us about, but it's, it's a frame for how you think about change. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Acceptance commitment therapy was created by uh, Stephen Hayes back in the 80s. And he and, and his, uh, his grad students have been working on this, uh, this idea. It's really the kind of the new wave of kind of behavioral therapy called contextual behaviorism. Uh, and what it does is it, it's a very here and now and very behaviorally oriented therapy that, that doesn't spend that much time talking about our past. Uh, it doesn't spend a lot of time talking about, um, you know, what mom did and dad did and you know, so on and so forth. But what it does do is it helps us identify what are kind of what are the stories we tell ourselves what are the stories we have in our heads about how things go and and you know one of the very core ideas of cognitive behavioral therapy is uh a plus b equals c a is the stimulus b is the thought about the stimulus and c is our reaction it's how we end up feeling so ACT does a beautiful job of honing in on that part of it. So it's very alive. It, it isn't about doing it right. It isn't about getting to a certain outcome. It's about learning to really be present to what you're experiencing in a way that involves acceptance, in a way that involves um, more ability to sort of self-regulate. Contextual behaviorism it also includes DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, and that's that's all about kind of self-regulation, um, emotion regulation. So that's where I spend my time with my clients. I don't do a whole lot of work around, you know, there's always trauma work to do, but not a whole lot of like stroking my chin, you know, fake chin hairs. Uh, <laughs> I think they call that a beard. <laughs> uh, so I don't know. Does that, does that help? We may need to pause for a moment, and, and I just need to ask, do you wear a fake beard as a therapist? <laughs> Sorry. Because um, um, mine's Only been getting really itchy lately. Only with my most important 
the ones you really need to impress. I'm sorry to divert. <laughs> you know, I, I think what I hear you getting at that I really appreciate about ACT over original CBT, at least the way CBT is typically practiced, is CBT as a way of saying, you know, if you're feeling badly, it's because you had the wrong thought. So think something else, change your mind, and that will be the end of that. For a lot of folks, it certainly it can be practiced much more skillfully, but in its really basic sense, that way, it leaves us with this idea that every time I'm having a bad feeling, it's kind of my fault. What I really like about the acceptance element of ACT is it's much more designed to help you join the inevitable difficult feelings in life, to have those feelings fully so that they don't have you as my beloved early supervisor, Jamie Kine used to say, we either have our feelings or they have us, which is to say, if we're not fully in in our bodies and aware we are having a feeling and at some level willing to have it, before you know it, you're acting out every version of avoidance. And ACT does a beautiful job of making that safe. It does that, absolutely. Um, ACT is actually uh, built on a foundation of uh, something called relational frame theory. And relational flame, uh, frame theory uh, is a philosophy really created by, uh, by Stephen Hayes. And it's, it's based on language. Uh, and, and what he argues so incredibly convincingly is that once you have made a relational uh, connection in your head based on language, it cannot be undone. So one of the examples that they give is, is they might hold up a, a pencil and say, uh, so from now on, this is not a pencil, it's a thark. What is it? It's a thark. And so when I hold up this pencil, what do you think of? A thark. Okay, now let's do an experiment. I want you to pretend I never said that. Which, of course, is an absurd. It, it can't be undone. And to your point around kind of behavioral therapy, therefore, there is no wrong thought. Because even if it's not a, a thought that's particularly useful to you, there is no way to undo it. Unless you have a lobotomy or something, and that's ridiculous. You can't Rather, just ha- unhave the thought. You can't unhave, you can't unthink it. But what you can do is be able to see it over there as a thought. And just a thought. And just a thought, right? So it's not a right thought or a wrong thought. Brain is generating thoughts a million miles an hour all the time. Mm-hmm. It's when we grab onto the thought like a bucking bronco and ride it around the ring, that becomes the problem. Instead of just saying, oh, there's that thought again. A thought that's allowed to pass is like traffic that's allowed to pass. It's only when we hook ourselves to the bumper of a, of a passing car that we get into real danger. Yeah, the analogy I use with clients is that we don't want you in the bull ring. We want you in the stand. You can watch that bull do, do whatever it does. But the minute you get in the ring, the minute you get on its back, that's when you're in trouble. And they, in act, they call that diffusion. You can be fused with a thought. And you're so fused with the thought, you don't even know it's a thought. It's just the truth, like a capital T. Um, or you can be diffused from the thought. You can see it as a thought. And then you have choice. You have choice to ride around the ring or not. That's an extraordinary concept. 
Um, but like most beautiful thoughts and principles out there, like putting it into action is a whole different matter. <clears throat> and I'm curious about how that happens. I mean, if we were to talk about the kind of grief I'm feeling right now as here I am today sitting in my empty office in the Lotus Center in an empty building that has been vacated by COVID um, and will be sold in less than a month and that I'll be moving out of forever. I have a lot of fear about that, a lot of sadness about that. And it's there's no thought to unthink about it. It's painful. It's, it's life, isn't it? Right? Like painful things happen. Uh, suffering is yeah. inevitable. And, and yet, what you might find if you really kind of sit with it is, it's not the pain itself that becomes the problem. It's all the behaviors that occur in attempt to either avoid having that feeling or control or control the situation. So you don't have that feeling. Mm. So for example, you know, I've watched you, um, kind of desperately looking to replace the Lotus center, you know, grab all of your colleagues with you and find a place where you all can practice together so that you can, uh, essentially recreate, which, makes perfect sense but in that space there's almost a kind of a desperate quality to it um where you're finding yourself considering you know signing leases and and going into buildings that just didn't make any sense they smell like mildew like they're you know the, the cost is exorbitant the, it was so tempting to do almost anything so you didn't have to feel that great am i naming that right yeah. I mean, I'm thinking to myself as an aside, um, I had the thought before this show started that you're about the safest person I could possibly have on, the sh on this show because you've been my best friend since I was three and also the least safe person to have on this show because you know everything about me. Right. right, <laughs> so, right. And yet that's exactly what I want from this show. So here we go. Yes, I think there there has been an element of that. Like maybe I can do something grand enough whatever the risk and whatever the compromises that keeps the band together, you know, that keeps all of us together. In fact, maybe it could be even better and, and more could join us and, and the reboot of the Lotus Center will be, you know, TLC 2.0 and, and even better. And, um, and there was enough sitting with it that we, we could slow down and realize, yep, this is not the right thing to do yet. Uh, and especially as uh, this pandemic rolled through, it quickly became absolutely not the right thing to do. But I know what you mean, that there is, there is a pressure inside to make something happen that wasn't just about following a natural, um, a natural flow in life uh, to let what was painful become something beautiful. It was a forcing of something beautiful <laughs> so that right. I didn't have to have the pain in the first place. Yeah. And in that space, there's the potential too in the forcing to lose track of the cost of that yeah. to you, to your family members, right? To, uh, to your well-being. 
And so in the, the potential for in the forcing of that to really not be in the moment, to not be really present to your values, as they would say in that. Yeah. I'm not saying that did happen, but there's certainly the potential for that. One way you've heard me talk about that for years, because one of my favorite teachers ever used to include, uh, and still does, a lot of principles from the Kabbalah um, mm -hmm. and the way she talks about life. And as she would share it, the Kabbalah makes this beautiful, fascinating observation that everything in life Absolutely everything is cycling from expansion to contraction to expansion to contraction invariably. That is everything in the world of form. In the world of non-form, it doesn't cycle like that. But in the world where we live, uh, every atom is expanding and contracting. And every galaxy is expanding and contracting. The universe itself has been, you know, believed by physicists and the sages alike to be expanding and contracting. Democracy, love, every relationship, every lung and heart, right? Everything is doing this. And she makes that observation to say that our suffering really lies in our resistance to the natural flow. Whether something needs to contract and we need to feel sad or scared or furious or flat and hopeless and uh, clueless, right? right? Or it's time to expand and to allow ourselves um, into greater love or a new venture or um, a risk that's time to be taken, right? And so that was a moment where, as she puts it, when you're forcing expansion where contraction is actually in the natural order, you get right. yourself into trouble. And that it fits perfectly with what it sounds like ACT teaches and what you work with all the time with clients, too. But that's exactly right. And so what I'd want to do if you're you know, sitting on, on my couch with me in, in the office would, would be to say, so what is the story you have about what would happen if you didn't have the Lotus Center 2.0? What's the story you have about what that would look like or feel like? When I just open to there being a story, I notice I feel really sad first. And then a thought arises from that that asks, what if those were the best years of my professional life? Uh, and what if it's never so beautiful and sweet and incredibly harmonious as the 15 years I spent with those incredibly gifted, loving friends. What if it's over? What if it's over? And from now on, it's going to be sort of scraping by in mundane, boring little offices that aren't doing the brilliant integrative work of this place. And I'm just, I'm doing, you know, uh, thumbs up competent work, but not, yeah. not, um, not really groundbreaking work anymore. And then I don't feel loved the way I felt loved here. I'm just working near pleasant acquaintances and calling it good enough. Calling it good enough. Sure. And of course that makes sense. It, it makes sense that those feelings would be coming up. It makes sense that that, 
that narrative would be there. And yet, it is a narrative. It is a story. I'm wondering, what's under that? If you were to kind of peel that one back, if you were to say, okay, so the best years of my life were over. Maybe that's the narrative. The narrative is, I'm not going to be doing the groundbreaking work the way I used to. It's just going to be competent. What would happen then? Story underneath that. Hmm. This is not what I would expect to come up first. Well, I mean, okay, so I, I dropped through a layer of just the sadness that I fear would never quite go away, that I would always miss it, that there would always be something missing. But then there's something about it that feels kind of, I want to say, embarrassing. Like, huh. I would have thought, like, I imagined somebody from the outside thinking, huh, he's usually the kind of guy who really lands on his feet. That was, uh, wow, quite a regression there. You right. know what I mean? Like, right. Right. like, like there's something, some, the what of me, the, the egoic self of me feels diminished somehow by the loss. In addition to there just being a, a, an ache I fear would never pass. Right. So hearing you say, as you feel that back, you're kind of surprised that, that what you find is that actually more than one part to it. There's the loss. It's like grieving, grieving a relationship. So, but in addition to that, there's this, this feeling of, and I'm so disappointing. Yeah, that's better. I should be able to, I should be able to handle this with grace. I should be able to handle this with, you know, solidness. After all, this is what I do for a living. And so there's this way in which it sounds like you feel kind of, almost like exposed, like as though you were a fraud or something. Am I naming that right? Yeah, I guess as you're saying it back, it's true that it's less about what would others think of me. I can't really think of any particular person who would be disappointed in me as much as I'd be disappointed myself. Uh That something in me wants to believe that, shoot, by now, I of all people, with these degrees on the walls and this the books I've read and the people I've worked with and the 30 years of meditating somehow in all of that, I should be a guy who always falls forward and not just falls and that every failure should be somehow spun immediately into a resounding success that, that there is no regrouping. I just, I always bounce into something better. Right. That makes sense. Of course. Uh, and I'm hearing a kind of a narrative around that. It sounds like a really old one to me. Some version of underneath it all, I don't really know that I have it together. I should have it together. I'm supposed to have it together. And with all of my training and all my background and all my meditation, I, I should be a certain way. But it's like the emperor has no clothes. There's this sort of underlying sense of, yeah, but I'm actually kind of disappointing. And I'm wondering. And I'm really hoping not to discover that about myself. <laughs> right. right, right. That I, I will actually run somewhat frantically and furiously in order to not have that experience. 
Yeah. I'm wondering then, is that a familiar feeling? The feeling of not enoughness. Yeah. If I just sort of follow the pictures that arise from that, I'm I'm eight years old and trying to make it work in a new city. Um, but there it is. Damn. You notice the feeling right there. There it is, yeah. Brings up a lot of tears to think of uh, the move we made from Maryland to Omaha, which was supposed to be this great movement of expansion and in many ways was for our parents, but I think for, and really for you too, you you just thrived there, but I was the one who could not quite find my footing for years, actually. That was not a fall forward. That just felt like a pretty traumatic series of losses for a while, which in many ways, you know, yeah, all these years later, I can say made me a more deeply empathetic feeling person, may have driven even the career choice I made, but at the time was just brutal. Well, and that was on the heels of the divorce. You know, mom, mom and dad divorced when I was, what, three and a half and you were six or something like that? Yeah. So as you hold that, there's this there's this narrative. There's a there's a storyline, some version of. I'm so scared that when push comes to shove and that shit really hits the fan, that I'll fall down. That my true essence will be revealed. My true not enough. Yeah. The the aloneness. That goes with not being surrounded by a professional or real family that that really knows knows me and helps hold me up. Yeah, I think that's right. So that right there, that exchange, it gets that fast to there's the core. That's the pain I am have been trying for years not to have again. Never have that feeling, that core wound I don't want to return to, whatever Herculean professional feats I must pull off and often have to stay away from that sense of sort of uh, feeling alone and uh, scared and effectively underpowered for my situation, underperforming as... I did at that age when already pretty depressed as a little boy. Disconnected and impotent. Yep. And what we're able to see then is how much of your life, and it's not just yours, I promise I'll I'll expand beyond you here, but how much of life then is spent trying to avoid that feeling or trying to control circumstances so that feeling doesn't show up. And that all by itself isn't a problem. It's not like, you know, you should you should create a life so you feel only that. The problem is not that. The problem is when in doing that, your behaviors are not in alignment with your actual values. values. And all of this happens unconsciously. Right? We, we don't know that's what we're doing, but you know, Freud is, a, is an asshole, but he was right in many respects. So much of our behavior is based on 
what I could say is a reaction to an unconscious narrative. But here's the interesting thing to me. Here's the really cool thing. Is that my clients have almost always the same arc. That's first a meet and greet, you know, and in building reports and so forth. But usually around the fourth or fifth session, they'll say, hey, Ben, I have a secret that I've never told anyone. Hey, what's that? Say, I'm secretly afraid I'm not enough. I secretly am afraid that everyone will leave me. I'm secretly afraid that people will see my not-enoughness and leave. And I hold that tighter to my chest than any other secret I have. Yeah. What's so profound about that to me is that every client says the same thing. Always in different language. Yes. And to think that that is inherently dysfunctional is exactly wrong. It's the most human experience you have. And everyone on a certain level has had an experience that made them feel irrelevant and disconnected. And and I, I guess what you're getting at that really is at the core of this entire show and the the huge mystery I really want to understand more about from every point of view we can bring here to talk about it is that it's that bizarre paradox that you at some level have to go make contact with that feeling, even have that feeling and survive it so that you can stop living the life that was about avoiding or controlling that feeling. That, that's exactly it. And this ends up being the essence, not just of therapeutic change in the internal sense, but over and over again, it shows up in so many different ways. <laughs> this weird analogy uh, I've laughed about for years, but it just keeps coming up with clients. I will ask them, so if you remember those movies about kind of, you know, the old Westerns, do you remember how they would typically stop a runaway train? Dynamite on the tracks? I don't know. All the things that come to mind are versions of how do you control it? Well, one of them is you set up a big roadblock and what you have is a gigantic train wreck. Okay, that doesn't work. It kills everyone on the train. The other one is you vacate the town that it's going to barrel through so that none of those people get killed. Great. Another avoidance strategy still doesn't quite solve the problem. The only way to stop a runaway train in an old Western is you board the train. You have to ride along the side of that thing, standing on your saddle, and make the wild jump onto this train that is the most dangerous thing you could possibly jump onto, crawl along the top of the cars and into the locomotive and find the old geezer who had a heart attack and fell forward on the stick. And finally, from the inside of the very train you're afraid is going to kill you, then you can make change. So this can't be quite apparent in the, in the show, but there is something that already shifted in getting... And it's funny, like, tears come up again. And just being able to bridge those two experiences. That's right. 
the change I'm feeling here at the Lotus Center with a huge change we had as kids. The loss of this family as it breaks apart with the divorce of our parents. The moving from this building to some unknown place in a hell of a hurry now with this weird COVID stuff changing all the timing to the move from Maryland to Omaha, which at the time was really painful for me. Scary. And I think there's a fear that you're right. You're exactly right. I will arrive in this new place feeling um, alone and impotent and unseen that no one will know that I'm in tremendous pain that I can't talk about. And there's something about making contact with that that moves from scary to poignant. It's an acceptable yes. sadness. It feels I, like a kind I, of sadness I can survive, even grow through. I, it's these. There are not. There aren't good words for it, but like there it is, right there. It's in the joining of that that something begins to shift. Well, and and what we then talk about is the difference between sort of getting rid of a feeling or changing it out and, and transforming it. You know, I, the, the viewer can't see this, but I can see you're really moved. You're deeply moved by almost like they call it an act. They call it self in context to be able to see that little boy, to see him in his pain and in his suffering. And what we don't want to do is to shut him up. Go ahead, give him something. To distract him quick, you know, fix it. What we want to do is to be able to hold him and let him cry. The same way we would hope on our best days as a parent, we might behave for a child who's hurting rather than tell them stop hurting or fix the problem instantly or tell them to be quiet about it at least. We'd hope to at least scoop them up and hold them for a little while, rock them as long as they needed it and let that feeling move through them safely and what i see with my clients is that they have this idea that somehow pain is bad or wrong or an indication of something bad or wrong that needs to quickly be swept under the rug or fixed or changed these it's just energy now these feelings are energy and if you can allow yourself to be really present and let it wash over and through you you don't have to run anymore. You don't have to dissociate. You don't have to, you know, eat another, as Brene Brown says, another banana nut muffin. Yeah. Which doesn't mean it's fun, but it changes from a scary grief to a sweet set. Yeah. What I've seen thousands of times with clients and experience myself that this gets to beautifully is that as that feeling then not only rises and peaks and passes, as one wise one I know says, you know, everything, including feelings, have a beginning, a middle, and an end, <laughs> right? As they pass, What's on the other side of that feeling is a different set of choices than what we ever had before that feeling or from an avoided, controlled place. It's not the same. It's not if you escape the feeling, you don't actually have the same options you have when the feelings move through you. I think a piece of what I find so beautiful and mysterious and enraging about this change paradox is that at some level, the changes we least want to have are most here to change us. 
right? There's something in this. I can't just tie a pretty bow around. I'm going to actually have to have the tears I just am having with you right now or that I've had alone in this office before. But like the more conscious and present I am for it, the more it's not just that the feeling changes so I can then change my circumstances more skillfully. It's that 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 shift was here to change me. And I don't become the rest of who I'm meant to be if I can't join those as they arrive in my life often unbidden right and instead what happens and and you see entire lives affected by trying to avoid or control just that moment you had whereas if you just have it if you just let yourself really drop into that space it often doesn't last more than a few minutes yeah yeah it already of course feels different it already feels different. Then, only then, when, when essentially you've allowed for the feeling, then you can make conscious choices that are in alignment with your values, right? You can get clear, well, what is it then that's valuable versus what is it that I can do so I don't feel this? I've heard some talk about then the after feeling as kind of the beautiful sadness. Yeah, sweet sadness, beautiful sadness, yeah. Do we have time for me to tell you a story where this happened for me? Absolutely. So I was at an ACT workshop with, uh, with kind of three of the greats, uh, Robin Walser and, and, and Stephen Hayes and, and Kelly Wilson, uh, were there leading the, an ACT boot camp, they call it. And uh, probably about 500 people there in a hotel conference room. And, uh, and Robin Walser was leading this one, and, and she asked for a volunteer course like an idiot i raised my hand uh and went up in front of these 500 people and she's oh i'm gonna cry just thinking about it like she said hey ben what are you what are you most afraid of a little taken aback by the question like something i wasn't prepared to answer in front of 500 people well the truth is I'm, I'm really afraid that I'm, I'm fucking up my kids. <laughs> I'm afraid I'm not doing it. Uh, yeah. And that in the process, I, I won't create a, a life for them. Um, that is really as good as it could be. And, uh, and so she went through a couple series of questions. And what I really got to was, I'm so afraid my kids will suffer the way I did when I was a kid. That's what I'm afraid of. And she said, so what do you do with that energy? What do you, you know, what do you do with that? I said, well, you know, Orion has like three books on his bedside table on, you know, being socially appropriate and how to make friends. And, you know, I, I think I meditate with Eden twice a night, you know, before she goes to sleep. <laughs> and I'm sort of realizing the absurdity <laughs> of this. Um, it, it, it's highlighted by the 500 people laughing. Um, and she said, so if you do it all just right, then what will happen? And I said, uh, well, then they won't suffer. 
And she looked me dead in the eye and she said, Ben, it's too late. Whew. Sort of you know, shook my head, like, wow. And sort of fought back the tears. And she said, Ben, it's too late. So I started to cry, you know, like hard, like snot lying kind of crying because I knew she was right. Some from the audience, clearly very uncomfortable and perhaps concerned about the flying snot, uh, <laughs> rushed over the Kleenex box. And Robin Walser took it from her hand and just put it behind her back. Mm. What she was doing was she was not letting me run away from this wow. feeling. Wow. She then said, Ben, show me a child that has not suffered, and I'll show you a person disconnected from the world. Yeah. Fuck. Right? Yeah. That's it. That's it. And in that space, you know, I cried. I couldn't stop, actually. I had to pull over on the side of the road several times trying to drive back home. Uh, Yeah. But after that, there's something different. And I'm able to be really present to them in a way I wasn't before. I was too busy running around trying to fix it and control it and manage it and teach them. And I was missing them. I wasn't present. You're missing your life. In order to avoid feeling. I was trying to avoid and control. Now it's just putting it on my kids. Welcome to every parent's story. That's exactly right. And that's the power of this kind of work. In act, you're not trying to get to a happy place. That's not the point. You're trying to accept the truth. That is that life has suffering. And to lean into it, lean into your life. Lean in with your thoughts, with your feelings, your behaviors, and get clear on what really matters. And then you just carry all those uncomfortable feelings with you into those matters. Well, I can't think of a better place to just wrap this show in naming, and therein lies the change paradox. That's it. That's it. It's so completely, stunningly, beautifully backward. We have to, as Joseph Campbell would say, the cave we most fear to enter, therein lies our treasure. And the only way to transform a feeling is to join with it. I find it so amazing and inspiring and exciting, more so now than an hour ago, honestly, that ACT has been able to do this, and I can think of, I currently have a list of 65 different guests that I would like to have on (laughs) that all have somehow individually in their own incredible ways nailed this same freaking thing. And it will sound totally different and exactly the same. And I just really hope that this is inspiring to our listeners as it is to me that I like, 
I need to do this show for me. This is an excuse to set a table and invite one guest after another to come and teach me how in the world this works. It's just amazing. I think of my, my therapy practice is a spiritual practice. It really is. And to be able to be present to what really is true, it, it's a, it has a spiritual quality to it. I mean, I don't know. I don't care what faith you're from. That's the spot. You're dipping back into that place where you have to be working at a level you can't possibly understand. You will not have a map for this. You won't even have a good guide. You're going to have somebody who's walked through that valley in his own way, on his own terms, and can say, hey, Dodge, you can do it. But the narrative is just a narrative. It's just a narrative. May that be the arc of this show, however long it lasts. And uh, I love you, brother. I love you, too. Thank you for coming and helping us understand through one more beautiful set of lenses how this works. Thank you, too, in advance for the experiential exercise you'll guide our listeners through in a minute when we wrap so that they have a chance to work with some of their own stuff using this, uh, this way of understanding the change paradox. All right. Blessings. Hey, it's Pete again. Everybody doing okay? I'm sitting here on my couch listening along to this and Kleenex box behind the back. I'm weeping over here. Tell me I am not alone. So now you've heard Ben lead Dodge through a bit of act engagement, and now it's your turn. So if you can manage it, find a quiet spot where you can sit for a few minutes and close your eyes, move through an act engagement with Ben all by yourself. If you have them, you should put on your headphones now. And before I let you go, you can become a supporter of The Change Paradox at truestory.fm slash thechangeparadox. Your membership makes you a critical part of the engine of listener-supported podcasting. For just a few dollars a month, you can support the time we put in to creating and producing this show. And just for members, I sit down with Dodge for a conversation about the interview each week that you can only access through your personal podcast feed once you sign up. We're calling those episodes Afterthoughts, a chance for Dodge and me to have a conversation about their conversation, share lessons learned, tools for integration, talk about how our lives are changing as a result of that conversation, and of course, laugh along the way. Thank you all for joining us on this journey. And now, Ben Ray. So let's do an exercise. And in this exercise, I want you to start with something that's present in your life, something that's going on right now, where you find yourself uncomfortable. And you might be uncomfortable 
where you're maybe anxious, you're maybe feeling a little depressed, you're feeling irritable. You think of that, I want you to, if you can notice whether or not there's a kind of a story attached to it. Is there a, a story that says something like, um, I have to, or I must, or he must, or they, or, or it has kind of a, like an urgency to it. What is the story there? What is the story that kind of floats across your mind? What is it telling you? And as you notice that, I want you to also notice your behaviors. And is there a way in which your behaviors have a, a little bit of a, a desperation to them? That you find yourself not peaceful around it, but kind of uh, angsty to the point where you want to like run away from it, where you want to like fight it or control it. Give that for a second and, and just notice, notice what is the urge? Is it, is it to dissociate? Is it to get numb? You know, take a drink, turn on the TV? Or is it the kind where you find yourself kind of being busy around it? million miles an hour doing this and doing that, trying to manage. Notice then we have a story. We have the behaviors and the reaction to the story. I want you to notice that the behaviors either trying to manage control or trying to avoid. So the sense that those behaviors might help temporarily, you really gave someone a good tongue lashing, it helped temporarily relieve the feeling, the pressure around the feeling, emotion. But a sense that actually in the long run, it makes it worse. you might even notice that this is not new. That around this kind of emotion, whatever it is, there's this almost impulsive or reactive temptation. It's sort of the opposite of just truly sitting with it, gently, with an openness. So if you weren't in the reactivity, what would be the emotion? What would it be like gently tip your toe in the water of that feeling? 
and enter into your body. We even notice where it shows up in your body and take a deep breath into that. Good. And as the feelings come up, I want you to hold them tenderly, gently. And notice how much instinct there is to get away from it. Run, 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 run. But this time, just let it enter in and through you. Good. And notice as you do that, does it start to shift a little bit? Notice maybe with Dodge, as, as he allowed for that feeling, as he got in touch with that narrative, with the story and how deep it was, that feeling maybe of, I don't know, not enoughness, feeling of disconnected, feeling of irrelevant. What if you just make contact with that? And then, as happened with Dodge, notice how it starts to shift just a little bit. So this is the exercise. And I want you to practice doing this. When you find yourself in that reactive place, wanting to either dissociate, numb it, run away from it, or control it, get busy, or attack it. Instead, what happens if you make contact with the actual emotion? Make contact with the storyline that allow for that feeling to drop in and through, even for just a moment. That's the exercise.